Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. I am Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve, and welcome to another edition of the Spy Talk podcast. We think we've got another great episode today, one that's especially timely, given the indictment of yet more Oath Keepers, the far-right extremist militia, for their alleged role in the pro-Trump riot at the Capitol last January. I had a conversation with Tom O'Connor. He was with the FBI for 23 years studying domestic extremism. And I asked him where we are and where we're going. Uh, People are kind of going to ground. That in no way means that the threat is gone. It actually, in my eyes, I think we have more Timothy McVeigh's uh, in the offing because of the continued conspiracy theories, the continued rhetoric uh, that is being played not only uh, by domestic players, but also foreign actors. That sounds fascinating, Gene. Tom O'Connor is a real expert, a national treasure on far-right extremists. But first, I've talked with longtime investigative national security reporter Bill Arkin about his recent Newsweek story on a vast secret undercover Pentagon army that disguises the operations of military intelligence and special operation troops abroad. Bill Arkin, welcome to Spy Talk. In a recent Newsweek piece, you wrote an astounding story about, quote, the largest undercover force the world has ever known, deployed by the Pentagon over the past decade. You say some 60,000 people now belong to this secret army many working under masked identities and in low profile, all part of a broad program called Signature Reduction. What does this all mean? Why do we need Signature Reduction and explain what that is? Well, first of all, the very concept of Signature Reduction has never been written about. Is that another word for cover? It is and it isn't, because it's a combination of both clandestine, undercover, and to some degree, operational security. So it's an umbrella term that encompasses all of those uh, techniques, if you will, of human intelligence. And what's it for? Well, it's for OPSEC, for operational security. It's, It's for the purpose of Uh, both protecting the identities of the operators themselves, as well as protecting the operations. So you have to go back a little bit and discuss the origins of signature reduction, which really came uh, with with 9-11, the war on terrorism, and and the beginning of the military becoming more and more uh, an operator that was clandestine and even in some cases covert. And so yes, this is a vast the- this is a vast undercover army that was created mostly to confront to find, fix and confront uh, to blunt terrorists. Yes and no because it was 
probably that's its origins. But today, where a third of those 60,000 people are cyber operators and influence operators who are merely sitting at their keyboards at Fort Meade or other places uh, conducting uh, social media exploitation or uh, conducting psychological operations. Uh, it really has very little to do with terrorism anymore, or at least terrorism is not the only mission associated with signature reduction. But, but it's a confluence. It's a confluence of two separate things. A new mode of warfare on the one hand, the need for US special operators and even for soldiers to go out there in the world and protect themselves, protect their identities, protect their families' identities while they were operating. And at the same time, the shift from the analog to the digital era, if you will, to the social media era that we live in now, the smartphone era. And so this technological shift has also forced the military uh, to begin to think about how to operate with a lower profile and how to operate in a way that protects the identities and protects uh, the operations of the very soldiers who are out there doing the work. Now, I say soldiers, but of course, this includes civilians and contractors as well, and probably oh, 20% or 30% of the total of that 60,000 is contractors. So we see in the creation of this vast army of people who operate undercover, covertly, clandestinely, in low profile, with misattribution or non-attribution online, it's a wide variety of techniques, but they're all essentially complying with the rules of what are called signature reduction. Can we infer from that, Bill, that our adversaries are very aggressive in trying to find out the identities of our military personnel? Well, I think that that's intrinsic in this whole discussion. I mean, the spy versus spy game, which you know goes back to Mad Magazine, is one that uh, is the constant of intelligence operations. I mean, I was in Army intelligence in Berlin in the 1970s. You were in Vietnam. I mean, the, the you know keeping information from the enemy, operating clandestinely, conducting operational security, opsec measures you know, have become just more and more complicated because there's not a singular enemy and the paths to the discovery of, of, of information that is useful to the enemy has increased exponentially. So we see that, say, for instance, when uh, a soldier or a, a contractor or a civilian working at the Pentagon might make a Facebook posting uh, of, you know, here I am in Burkina Faso and all of a sudden they're revealing useful intelligence information that is otherwise uh, protected and, and controlled by the Pentagon. So the, the, the measures of signature reduction are everything from the guys who are in the deepest cover who are operating in places like Pakistan or inside Iran or inside North Korea where they really require uh, the, the full efforts of the intelligence community to protect their identity and protect their physical security, all the way down to uh, people who are sitting uh, behind their keyboards, people who are sitting at, at, at various cyber centers who are operating, say, in social media 
uh, against al-Shabaab or against ISIS or other organizations. And in fact, a big part of the signature reduction effort is to be able to operate in places like Africa uh, where the dirty work is really being done by the locals. I mean, even in places like Somalia, a big part of the United States' effort is to get the Somali special forces and Somali intelligence services to be able to do the work that the United States doesn't want to take the risk to do. And so, but in order to do that, they still have to protect uh, the the fact that there are bases in Somalia, the fact that there are special operators on the ground, uh, their identities, et cetera. Uh, a story was told to me when I was reporting this out of a soldier who uh, actually operated inside Yemen. And he would get off of an airplane in Yemen as himself, but then within hours, he would change his credentials and his identity inside the country to being somebody else. So he could dis disappear, if you will, in into the operation. And this is a more common uh, element. Although, although, again, I describe in this article uh, the enormous efforts that are underway to defeat biometrics. I want to get back to how this uh, works overseas with operations, but let's put some flesh on this vast clandestine infrastructure that you describe. You tell the story of the secret life of Jonathan Darby, not a real name. Tell us about how he worked to uh, make his rounds and create or help sustain false identities for military intelligence and other personnel. Sure. Uh, probably out of a couple of hundred calls I made over two years, a couple of hundred contacts, I, 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 I might have been able to get uh, 10% of them who didn't hang up the phone or, or, or tell me that I was a um, agent mm -hmm. of, the, of the Russians. Uh, and uh, this was one, a retired uh, army enlisted man uh, who had worked in human his entire career in the army and had gotten out and was now working for a small company that services mm -hmm. the signature reduction uh, world. He, he works out of a, a secret organization that exists in Elk Ridge, Maryland. And that secret organization is responsible for uh, the administering of, of the identities and the travel documentation and the, and the finances of people who operate undercover. It, it, it's a, it's, I think it's a 400 person organization with, with a half dozen contractors and uh, contractors, meaning contracting companies. And uh, they essentially take people in the special operations world and in the defense clandestine service and provide the false documentation. They provide the false IDs. They provide the, uh, the, the credit cards, the, the banking, the, the, the pocket litter, if you will, that is, the, that is associated with their false identities, arranges their travel, and then backstops them online to ensure that they're not revealing anything in both their fake lives and in their real lives. So these are people who have to maintain both. And in fact, some people who operate undercover like Knox, you know, non-official cover, they have to have their real lives maintained while they're not under non-official cover. So, so you describe that's how all of these things go together. 
you describe a typical day for him. He gets in a government car, one of 200,000 federal vehicles owned by the General Services Administration. It's not registered in his real or fake name or the magnetically attached Maryland license plates really for his car. So what does he do? Well, in his case, one of his jobs is to go to uh, a series of uh, uh, storefront post offices, mailboxes incorporated, et cetera, and pick up the mail and then distribute the mail. Well, they're letters uh, from credit card companies, bills, their bank statements, their letters from overseas, their letters which are created explicitly for the point of having uh, pocket litter, if you will, records of the existence of somebody, even if they aren't. So if Jeff writes a letter to Bill and it's mailed in Ethiopia, uh, and Jeff is not a real person, and Bill is not a real person, then when uh, Bill operates in Ethiopia, he has in his luggage a fake letter that matches his fake identity from his buddy Jeff telling him, how's it going? Is the oil business being good to you in Ethiopia? And all of that becomes then the underpinning of the ability of Bill to be able to operate in Ethiopia undercover. So this is an elaborate mechanism to do, to develop depth in a person's cover so that if an opposition force, Russians, Chinese, Iranians, whoever, uh, gets suspicious about this individual, they'll start checking him out to see if he is who he says he is, right? Well, yes, and but and that's so the- they can discover things that will help backstop this individual, a little bit like uh, the movie where the CIA disguise expert gets U.S. Uh, personnel out of Iran. Um, they created a whole fictitious uh, movie company to backstop their cover as the uh, cast of a movie being filmed in Iran. Well, you know, there are historic cases, as you just mentioned, Jeff, that uh, actually were operations that were vital and were, um, uh, you know, important in saving lives. I conclude from my investigation that most of this signature reduction work is, is busy work. Because, because if there's a, a white guy operating as anything, a contractor in a country like Ethiopia or Burkina Faso or Cameroon or whatever, all foreign intelligence services are gonna immediately want to know who he is and what he's doing. And it's not like this person is, is, a, is a CIA operative. This is a military person who ultimately has to associate himself with other military persons who are operating in this place. So on the one hand, really it's an OPSEC matter, which is it's protecting the person's identity back in the United States. That's the most important part. But if that person were actually captured, uh, I, I would think that the United States, at least at the diplomatic level, would immediately say this is a soldier mm. because then they're subject to the Geneva Convention and the protections associated with being a soldier, that they're not a covert operator. And that's what distinguishes the CIA from the non-CIA operators who are undercover, mm-hmm. which is to say that CIA people are not accorded uh, the privileges of the Geneva Convention. And in fact, uh, you know, as we know, 
There have been CIA people who have been captured by the enemy and they've been held for long periods of time because diplomatically they've not been able to be released. In the yeah. case of military people, it's a very different case. And it seems to me that outside of Russia and China, and I'm just offering them as theoretical um, subjects, uh, outside of uh, them, um, these military spies would not be afforded any conventions, uh, Geneva Convention protections, if they were rounded up by ISIS affiliated, Al Qaeda affiliate, or agents that they could, there could be a spectacular execution of them. So isn't this Pentagon program, although it's entirely understandable that you want to give cover to your operatives operating abroad, isn't this by the vast numbers alone, isn't this putting a lot of our military people in jeopardy? Well, I would say the answer is yes. And we've seen this from the very first days of the US war in Afghanistan in 2001, when special operators went into Afghanistan clandestinely. And in some cases, some of those commanders of the Northern Alliance and the Uzbeks and, and the Tajiks uh, didn't want them operating in uniform. And it became a, 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 a rather sensitive issue because if, if special operators are on the ground in a combat zone and they're not operating in uniform, uh, then there, there are questions as to whether or not they are uh, suitably identifying themselves as combatants under the Geneva Convention. And if they're not suitably identifying themselves as combatants, meaning wearing a uniform, then they could be denied the privileges of the Geneva Convention. This, this has been a controversial question from day one. And I think Rumsfeld decided that the risks was worth it. And since then, the operations that military people have undertaken in denied areas, I put that in quotes, denied areas, in Pakistan, in Yemen, in, in inside Syria, et cetera, uh, does run the risk of, of, of their being particularly vulnerable. Now, I mean, that's what the military signs up for. And the question is whether the operations themselves are greater than the risk involved in the force protection and the operational security of those people. And, and I think what we see in this vast signature reduction industry, over a hundred contracting companies, thousands of people administering this whole program, is that they've built up this capacity to improve the operational security and the physical security and the protection of these people when they're out there operating in the Middle East and in Africa, specifically because they've lost many of the protections of the Geneva Conventions. What's your estimate of the number of military operatives uh, in the field at any one time under this program? Uh, somewhere in the area of 5,000, I think is what I've heard. So that includes most Joint Special Operations Command operators who uh, operate under false identity when they're on the ground. Uh, that includes uh, human intelligence collectors and operators who work for either the Defense Clandestine Service or for SOCOM, the Special Operations Command. And that includes uh, the intelligence collectors, especially the close-in intelligence collectors, that is the SIGINT people who operate uh, inside places like Afghanistan, Syria, et cetera, who have to get close to the sig signal source 
the cell phone, the walkie-talkie, whatever, because it doesn't propagate very far. So close in SIGINT is a huge growth industry within the US military and in intelligence worlds. And, and, and at any one time, a special unit uh, headquartered at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, sends people out into the field all over the world uh, to collect special signals, cell phone signals, uh, uh, and even to uh, detect and, and jam uh, IED triggers that are associated with cell phone and garage door openers and other kinds of low level signals that you can't get to unless you're in, in, in the radius of the signal itself. You say in your piece that there's never been any hearings on Capitol Hill, no congressional oversight of this really vast program. How do you account for that? <laughs> secrecy, Jeff, secrecy, it works. Um, uh, you mean you know, secrecy that the military is keeping knowledge of this program or the, or the depth of this program from Congress? Well, I don't know if they're keeping it from Congress in that way. I mean, secrecy to me has often been most effective when the secrets are sitting in plain sight. So, uh, you know, when you stamp something with a, with a giant code word and you make it into a special access program, uh, there are rules that then require reporting to Congress. So the irony is that, that the easiest way to keep something secret is to put it in the file cabinet not to register it as a special access program, which then under the law requires reporting to Congress. Signature reduction isn't exactly that because it's a, it's a term of art. It's an informal term that applies to this broad range of activities. But the truth of the matter is, and by the way, it falls under numerous special access programs. But really what we're talking about is that no one up until I think I wrote this article had a sense of the scale of signature reduction. Of course, they knew that the Defense Clandestine Service or they knew that the Joint Special Operations Command was engaged in clandestine operations, but that 60,000 people were, uh, could, could dip into uh, these identities or could operate uh, in this way or that the size of the cyber operations force had grown uh, into the thousands, or that there were so many companies with classified contracts which were administering this program. Nobody I talked to except one person who was a retired uh, general who had overseen uh, the, the Defense Department special, operation, uh, special access world, special operations special access world really knew the scope of the entire program of, of, of dozens of people I talked to. As, as we've seen in the past, um, these black programs, as they're called, um, are ripe for uh, corruption and abuse. Uh, so did you sense any of that going on in this program? No, and actually, quite to the contrary. It seemed to me that the program itself uh, was a meticulous effort to um, safeguard against the problems that had existed in the past, where, where uh, army clandestine operators had in fact uh, uh, financially uh, take, gotten gain from their clandestine operations in Central America or 
where these secrets had been cover for uh, soldiers uh, um, moving drugs or <clears throat> being engaged in human trafficking, et cetera. So a large part of the whole signature reduction effort is to safeguard against fraud. And, uh, and as far as I can tell, it, it's been fairly successful. Uh, I, I, did, I do know that there's an inspector general and an audit within this signature reduction program and the Defense Intelligence Agency through what's called the Defense Cover Office uh, is, is, is responsible for sort of uh, what they call due diligence uh, for making sure that the corporations which are being used for cover, making sure that the organizations which are being created to create cover, what the CIA calls proprietary organizations, uh, are legitimate and are run properly and that they pay their taxes and that the credit cards are not abused and that travel is not abused, etc. So the irony of the creation of this very organization uh, in Elkridge, Maryland, the defense program support activity uh, is, is in fact to avoid these problems of the past. Given the extreme secrecy of this program, a number of people might ask, a number of people listening to this podcast might say, well, why did some of these operatives, these cogs in the machine talk to you? Well, it's always an interesting question why people talk to journalists, isn't it? And um, part well, it's of usually is, because of abuses, you know, yes. they're, they're whistleblowers yes. of resort, or they're deeply concerned about how a secret program is being run. But you say this is being run pretty well. Uh, so why, what was their interest in talking to you? Okay, so journalists to journalists, we're going to now have a secret conversation, Jeff, and we're going to say to each other, we're we're veterans of this world, and that is certainly the excuse that sources often give. But sometimes they just like to tell us about cool spy shit. Sometimes they just like to brag about what they're doing. And if somebody asked them, why, why would you talk to a journalist? They would say, because I'm concerned about the public policy implications, or I'm concerned about fraud, waste, and abuse. But, you know, to me, sometimes it's just an excuse. Sometimes guys like to just fricking brag about what they know. And if I know an inch and they can show me that they know a foot, okay, then, you know, they're the alpha and I'm the beta. And that's sometimes how you talk to sources. I learned this as a research assistant working for Cy Hirsch, which is you start blabbing, telling them everything you know, so that they, uh, in fact, provokes them to tell you, no, 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 you know, no, you're wrong about that. And then all of a sudden you've got somebody talking to you. So I, I, I think there's a variety of motivations on the part of people. I don't want to underestimate, I don't want to understate how hard I worked on this. And um, I think in the end uh, we did about 200 FOIAs and got virtually nothing. And so FOIA means Freedom of yeah, Information Freedom Act of Information Act request. Yeah, I mean, we've got nothing. Uh, either neither confirm nor deny responses. We can't confirm or deny the existence of this organization or this program or this activity. Or, you know, we're still waiting on answers years later. So, uh, so I think that the reason why, I mean, I did an enormous amount of research and, and, and 
really, I'm going to say, revealing my tradecraft, that the main source of information for me to put together a picture of this was resumes and job announcements. And once I was able to build this kind of skeletal uh, picture, if you will, the dinosaur in the museum that was just bones, it was a question of then going out and finding some of the flesh that I could add to that. And that was really the hardest part, which was finding people who would be willing to talk about what they did. I, I, I pledged to each person that I talked to uh, that I would not reveal any active operations or any trade craft that was being utilized that would jeopardize what they were doing. Uh, but other people openly told me things about how we defeat biometrics at the border, how we utilize uh, false identities, how we utilize false uh, uh, online personas, uh, how, how the software works to create misattribution and non-attribution and uh, and online operations. People talked about it because it's it's cool spy shit. It's Q stuff from James Bond, and they wanted to talk about it. That's the irony. Can we expect uh, more follow-ups on this story from you? You can, because I'm working right now on the dramatic and uh, incredible growth of special access programs in the last decade. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, how many of those special access programs are not any longer about protecting stealth technology from the enemy or uh, protecting weapon systems capabilities that they are about operations. And uh, it's a really interesting story and uh, uh, really delves into the special access program world uh, a world that only receives the most cursory examination from Congress. Uh, and I, 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 I'm working on that, yes. Well, we'll look forward to reading about that and have you back on when you publish again. Bill Arkin, it's been a great pleasure to have you on the Spy Talk podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. Tom O'Connor spent almost two and a half decades at the FBI, and he was paying attention to domestic violent extremism, while most law enforcement was focusing on international terrorism. I asked him a question I get a lot. You might get it too, Jeff. Are we facing the possibility of a civil war in the US? I think we're further down that road than we've been in a long time. Um, it's not the first time that the uh, United States has had a polarized uh, political stage, but I think we're worse off now uh, for many reasons. And, and I think the, uh, just the proliferation of social media platforms, a 24-hour news cycle, and the ability of uh, conspiracy theories to just spread like wildfire, it, all it's doing is taking and putting gasoline onto an already lit flame. So we heard a lot during the Trump administration about Antifa and extremists on the left. Are you more worried about them or the groups and individuals on the right? Well, I, I think if you look at the statistics, you'll find that the uh, right-wing extremism uh, has been uh, a higher lethality rate. Uh, clearly, it's it really is uh, apples and oranges with the number of of deaths uh, attributed to the right wing. 
Um, but the left wing has has been there for years and years, right? I worked uh, in the FBI for uh, 23 years working domestic extremism. And at many, many events, the violence that was taking place at World Bank events in 2007 and uh, back in 2002, uh, these were um, mostly uh, the violence came from the left. Um, the, the right wing actually uh, won the day by not getting involved in the violence uh, it, publicly. And you would often see them uh, stay uh, behind the police lines and not going outside those police lines because they realized that at the end of the day, they could come out and say, hey, we were just uh, exercising our First Amendment rights uh, to free speech and peaceable assembly. And look at what these people did on the other side. But boy, uh, that's changed. Sadly, that has changed uh, on both sides of that coin. Um, now people are, are making... Uh, you know, violence take place in public arena uh, in a much larger scale. And, and it, it is it is disturbing because you really don't have one without the other. Right. The, many of these groups that have formed in the past uh, several years on the right are are formed to counter the narrative that they've been told is coming from the left. As you mentioned, Antifa is coming to your hometown. And so we had uh, militias standing outside of small town grocery stores to protect them from something that clearly was not going to happen, um, but they believed it. So we've been hearing a little bit less about the right-wing extremists, except for the fact that the FBI is investigating and making arrests. Uh, does that mean that the threat has subsided, or are we just in a lull? No, that doesn't mean that the threat has subsided at all. What happens uh, after large events, and we saw this in uh, April of, of 1995 when Timothy McVeigh uh, detonated a bomb at the Murrah Federal Building. It was a, a horrendous, 168 people were killed, 19 children were killed, and a lot of people said, I don't want to have that stain on me, right? So I, I'm, I'm going to move away from this uh, ideology, which I believed because of the perception of overreach of the government at Waco and Ruby Ridge, the bad economy uh, coming out in the 80s and 90s. Um, and so these were, the, these were the base of what brought the right wing together. After the Murrah Federal Building, we saw a kind of underground movement. Um, they were still there, clearly, with groups such as the National Alliance and the Aryan Nations, the two uh, big ones. You know, William Pierce was a very, um, the leader of the National Alliance very charismatic, um, Richard Butler from the Aryan Nations, again, very charismatic, but they there was less violence taking place because of what happened there. What I see, see is, is pretty much the same thing after January 6th, and with a, a very large push of arrests and charges, uh, people are kind of going to ground. That in no way means that the threat is gone. It actually, in my eyes, I think we have more Timothy McVeigh's uh, in the offing because of the continued conspiracy theories, the continued rhetoric uh, that is being played, not only uh, by domestic players, but also foreign actors. Uh, malign influence online uh, also is adding to that because the only winner in all of this is our, our foreign adversaries that have divided and seen uh, the United States citizenry divide. 
And I want to get back to the international connection in a moment, but but first I want to bounce this off you. Last week I talked to Juliette Kayam, former DHS official, yep. who said that she thought that the uh, move by social media companies, in particular, to to clamp down on what was being said on their platforms, had had an effect, as had the prosecutions, and she thought that the people uh, on the extreme had lost the winning narrative, and that they were having trouble recruiting and raising money. Do you agree or disagree with her? I definitely do not disagree with her. Um, but many times as, we, as we've learned through uh, history that uh, when, when something goes to a lull, that can also mean that they're just kind of fortifying and, and getting their act together. From what you said, uh, I gather that that you think the greater risk going forward is from individual actors or small cells, as opposed to the large organizations who came here to Washington on January 6th. Oh, I think that's 100%. I've always, and I think that uh, people that that study this um, would would say that, and the government also uh, would say that the lone offenders are the largest threat. Um, And, you know, that could be the person in their mother's basement online uh, and that the timeline that it used to take to go from what is what is called flash to bang to from the the, the uh, radicalization online now is much, much quicker than it was, say, in the 90s for uh, Timothy McVeigh, where he actually went to Waco. He went to Ruby Ridge, these different places where he went to actually protest, uh, you know, the the perception of the overreach of the government. And it took a long period of time for that to boil. Um, now you can see that happen very, very quickly. And, um, you know, if it doesn't happen publicly uh, online where someone is going to uh, call the police, call the FBI and say, hey, I, I think this is uh, somebody who is in a chat room that I'm in and they're really going off. If that person isn't in that type of environment so that that uh, a bell can be rung, um, then you have there's a big concern. I don't think we're you know, and I, I, I maybe have egg on my face down the road here, but I don't see the January 6th type movement uh, of that large scale um, taking place. I think that the the uh, uh, prosecutions and the arrests and the and people are seeing that that this is people are being rolled up. I think that tamps that down quite a bit. And that, that's the purpose of doing it. And as you mentioned, a lot of people are migrating to different platforms. They're going to encrypted apps and the like. And that makes it tougher, um, not just for friends and family to see what's happening, but for law enforcement to see right. what's happening. No, that's 100% right. And, and that is, you know, this this going dark uh, phase of what does law enforcement have the ability to uh, get into uh, to see these types of things. It's difficult enough for them to get into these, uh, you know, encrypted chat rooms. Uh, and But even the, the basic uh, storm front and different pro, uh, platforms that were used that were generally open, you know, membership, but open. Uh, law enforcement just can't go in and start monitoring people. Uh, you know, there's there are rules that uh, that need to be followed, and when people go to encryption, uh, that makes it just much more difficult. Even if you have the ability to go into to see what's going on because of information, um, you you may not be able to get into that that uh, platform. So, do the rules need to be changed in your view? 
Uh, I, I don't think so. I, and, you know, I think one of the things that needs to be changed uh, is that currently uh, under Title 18, 2331, which is the terrorism uh, statutes in the United States, there's a great definition for domestic terrorism. And it, it basically is uh, use of force of violence, a, a violation of, of uh, laws of any state, doesn't have to be a federal crime, it could be a state crime. Uh, but the, the purpose uh, is to in, is intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population or to influence the policy of a government. That is a, a really good definition. The problem with that is there's no teeth to that definition. You are not going to see anyone charged with uh, domestic terrorism in the United States. You're, you have seen and will see people charged with international terrorism, um, material support to international terrorism. But when it comes to domestic terrorism, you're only seeing people charged with, um, you know, potentially um, gun charges, explosive charges. Uh, but no one is actually classified or charged as a domestic terrorist. I would say I have been a voice uh, since I was the president of the FBI Agents Association. Um, at, in Congress and through other public forums to, uh, to bring change to that, to add a to the definition, an actual charge that could be used uh, to, to actually call someone a terrorist, uh, domestic terrorist, charge them as a domestic terrorist, because there's, there's numerous reasons for that. Uh, one would be, you don't know what the problem is, if you don't have the ability to track that problem, if you don't know, you would if you as a, a journalist would have to go out and look up every assault in the United States and find out if the purpose of that assault was to intimidate or coerce a civilian population or influence the policy of a government. That ain't going to happen. Right. So if someone was charged with terrorism, as they are in the international realm, then you could actually see what the problem is across the board. Hate crimes are uh, are often used as a fix, but they don't always fit. Um, so th it is something that needs to be changed. I do not think that we need to designate groups uh, as we do with the international terrorism. Uh, you know, being a member of ISIS or Al Qaeda in and of itself is illegal. To be a member of the Ku Klux Klan or a movement such as Antifa is First Amendment protected. I honestly believe we do not need to designate the actual membership in a group, we need to designate the crime, the violence associated with the ideology that goes along with that. I also don't think that the FBI and law enforcement need additional authorities. And I, I, I don't think we need uh, you know, to change that base. We have uh, good surveillance abilities and, and good uh, in, in, you know, internal abilities to do this job. It just, we just need to have, they just need to have something to charge. So we've always had something of an extremism problem, but it seems much larger than it once was. You've mentioned a couple of things that might have accelerated it, social media, political discourse, certainly the pandemic turbocharged things. Right. But it all is it also true that law enforcement took its eye off the ball and wasn't paying enough attention to this? Well, I, I honestly don't think that it was law enforcement not taking their eye off the ball. I think it was the government as a whole taking their eye off the ball. And that might not be uh, something to blame them for. Because if you look at um, the, the FBI, okay, the, the lead counterterrorism agency in the United States, uh, on September 10th of 2001, there were X number of agents working uh, counterterrorism, or in general, in the FBI. 9-11 takes place, almost 3,000 people are killed, uh, and 
clearly a shift in the FBI uh, changes the number of agents working uh, counterterrorism mission internationally. Uh, and as we go through the years, almost 20 years uh, coming up in September, it will be, um, the, we still have that number of, of agents and analysts and uh, other professional staff working the international um, ideologies and, and terrorism and ne need to. Now we see that we have a, this growth of domestic extremism. Where do you get your uh, agents to work this? Because virtually there are the same number of FBI agents in the FBI when I came in in 1997 and when I left on September 11th, 2019, the numbers haven't changed. So, so if you're now going to have, and you need to keep your eye on the ball of international terrorism, uh, and if you now need to have your eye on the ball of domestic terrorism, where, how do you do this without adding, uh, you know, bodies to, to work that stuff? And that, that needs to happen. Um, so some criticism has been made um, about the, the miss on uh, January 6th. Uh, many people say that the intelligence was politicized, and that's why um, the alert wasn't sent out, warnings weren't issued, why people weren't prepared for this to happen in Washington, D.C. Do you agree that politicization was a factor? Uh, I, I, I really don't. Um, I think that there were several factors that go into that. One is that domestic extremism uh, up until January 6th, and I worked it for 23 years, was considered a second tier priority. No question. And there is there is no one in the FBI or in the government that can look me straight in the face and tell me that domestic terrorism was as high a priority as international terrorism, because it's not true. It was not. I can tell you this. If information came in that ISIS was planning to do something at the Capitol in that day, it would be all hands on deck. No question about it. Right. But because it's domestic extremism, uh, it wasn't taken uh, as a as that first tier. You mentioned international ties earlier, and I want to take us back to that. How deep are the international ties of some of these groups, and how much do they worry you? We would have to be idiots to not think that our foreign adversaries are seeing what has happened uh, basically in the United States overall with a political divide and just captured that moment. Clearly, you have influence uh, online, and then uh, potentially you have uh, funding coming through different sources uh, to uh, to assist these groups. I mean, if you look is at it Charlottesville, happening? do you know if that's happening? Are they? Uh, I mean, I think I think we'd be foolish to think that it, it hasn't happened in some ways. Publicly, it has been. Uh, there was uh, a, a gentleman from uh, traditional workers party um, who who said that he received money from uh, from oligarchs out of the Russian. Uh, area. Is that true? I don't know. But uh, it doesn't take a lot of money to actually do some influence. If you look at Charlottesville, right, and you see the night before the Charlottesville event where Heather Heyer was killed by a, a right-wing extremist who drove his car into a crowd, the night before that uh, melee at Charlottesville, um, there was an event that took place at the University of Virginia. And you had about 800 uh, right-wing extremists march on a on a uh, a statue on campus, and so the mere fact that was a big uh, watershed moment in my eyes because I have worked this stuff for years, and you see 
25, 50 people get together and it's all been word of mouth, that type of thing. Here you have almost a thousand people, young, college age, uh, mostly males uh, showing up here wearing the same type of dress, the white shirt and tan pants in many cases, and carrying tiki torches, right? So if you're, if you're looking at that, somebody had to pay for 800 tiki torches. You tell me as we're moving into the summer and you go to your local hardware store and you buy five tiki torches, it's going to cost you over 20 bucks. Multiply that by even 500, right? So we're talking a, a substantial payment by somebody uh, towards an effort like that. Looking forward, who are you most worried about? Is it the white supremacists? Is it the neo-Nazis? Is it the incels? Is it Antifa? Well, it really is a combination of all of that plus the conspiracy theories. Uh, so we see groups like QAnon who have all of the stuff that they believed was going to happen, the, you know, the, the steal of the election and the, all of this stuff, none of it came true. So where have these people gone? They've gone to uh, right-wing groups that are, are there to welcome them with open arms. Uh, and they've also gone to the anti-vaccine uh, movement. So you're seeing a, some changes in a lot of these right-wing groups. So I honestly believe that our right-wing extremists are the most volatile currently, but as, as happens over decades of, of domestic terrorism or any type of terrorism, is you have that, that flow and then there's going to be a reaction. So uh, if we remember in the 60s and 70s, there were groups such as the Weather Underground that were blowing up police stations, police cars, doing real deal terrorism. And that in and of itself helped spur the right wing of the 80s, 90s, and then we've continued. So how worried are you right now about what's going to happen in the next six months, the next year? There are uh, potentially more Timothy McVeigh types uh, currently in the United States uh, that are not going away. These people who are, are potentially uh, actors in, in domestic extremism, they've got personal grievances that they uh, uh, you know, are holding. They, they mostly blame the government for. Uh, you, know, you don't never blame yourself because you don't have a job, because you're, you know, you're, your kids are screw up or whatever it is. You don't blame yourself, you blame the government. And, and if we look at the 90s, we saw the you know, perception of the overreach of the government at Ruby Ridge and Waco. Uh, if we look now, we're seeing the overreach of the government because of the pandemic. The Second, second Amendment, once again, is felt uh, by in these circles that uh, government is going to be coming for your guns. Uh, all of these things are in place, except now, unlike the 90s, the communication ability and the ability to uh, really become more and more radicalized online is there as it, it never has been in the past. That was fascinating, Gene. Actually, this is one of my favorite episodes so far in the podcast series. I hope you come back and listen to us again next week with another edition of the Spy Talk podcast. And don't forget that Spy Talk is on Substack. You can subscribe there and get a lot of great content. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Gene Meserve. I'm Jeff Stein. See you around. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.